Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. All right, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to John chapter 17. John 17, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book. So we're in John chapter 17 today, and as we approach this chapter, I was, I was reminded of the passage in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses encounters God in a burning bush. You might be familiar with this story. He sees this bush that's on fire but it says it's not consumed. So there's fire coming from this bush, but it's not burning the bush. And he hears the voice of God call his name, Moses, Moses. And so Moses obviously is interested, and he begins to draw near to the bush. And then the voice of God says, don't come any closer, and remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I feel a little bit like that, with John 17. What we have in this chapter is the longest recorded prayer in Scripture from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. So Jesus has been with his disciples. This is the night of his arrest, and the next morning uh, will, he will be crucified. He's been with his disciples, giving them kind of a final farewell sermon. Here's what's coming. I'm about to leave. The world is going to hate you. You're all going to abandon me. It's going to get really tough, right? But you're going to have the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's going to come. He's going to empower you. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to remind you of my teachings. All right. So he's given them all of these instructions, and he's finished that speech, that sermon, with the famous words in chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Maybe that's the best concluding line of a sermon ever. Take heart, I've overcome the world. And he finishes his speech. And then John 17 begins with the words, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And then the rest of John 17 is just Jesus praying. Jesus praying. And it feels a bit like we don't really belong here like we're listening in on a conversation between the eternal son of god and the eternal father and he's just pouring out his his heart and there's celebration and there's anticipation and it's it feels like why am why do i get to listen in on this it's like we've entered into the very presence of God, the holy of holies, if you will, that place in the temple where God lived and only the priest once a year could dare to go into that place to make offering for their sin. It's like we are right up against the very holy presence of God. And in his mercy, he lets us listen in. He lets his disciples listen in. And then John records it for us. So we have these 26 verses of Jesus prayer. It is remarkable. The Scottish reformer in the 16th century, John Knox, in his dying days, had this chapter read to him daily. 
as he was dying, he could find no portion of God's word that so comforted him than these words of the Savior to his father in heartfelt prayer for his disciples. It is an amazing prayer. Now, as we look at the prayer and the content of it, you can see pretty discernibly three major movements. Uh, Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for his own glory and for that of the Father. So he prays for himself, if you will, in the first five verses. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his immediate disciples, those that we would call apostles, for the 11 faithful disciples that were with him in that day. He prays for them. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for his church. That is, all believers who would come to faith through the word of the apostles. That includes us down here in 2018 in Baltimore, Maryland. So he, he, he breaks it into those three major movements, which are clear enough to see. But beyond those three movements, it's very difficult to pick this apart, if you will. It, it's not as though Jesus prays in this very linear, even logical necessarily, fashion. He's just sort of It's very effusive. He's just sort of pouring out his mind and his heart to the Father as he's looking ahead to what's about to come and thinking of his disciples whom he loves, who he's about to leave, and looking ahead to those of us who would believe through their word. And so it's hard to to follow in some ways. Um, While he clearly intends uh, his disciples and us uh, to to instruct us through, through this prayer, He wouldn't have uttered it publicly if he didn't intend it to instruct us in some way. Uh, He's not preaching a sermon. He's not delivering a lecture. So, you know, a point one, point two, point three, and therefore go and do likewise structure is just simply not here. It's just not in John 17, which makes my job a little bit hard to preach this passage because I like to find some organization. Okay, here's point one, here's point two. He says this, which leads to this. It's a little bit hard to do that in this chapter just because of the nature of prayer and the nature of Jesus' prayer to his Father. So what we're going to do over the next three Sundays is take one of these movements at a time. So today we'll look at verses 1 through 5, where Jesus prays for himself. And the next week we'll look at his prayer for his apostles. And then on the 29th, the last Sunday of this month, we'll look at his prayer for us, as for his church, all those who would uh, believe. So... Um, Without, that's probably enough like introduction and disclaimer. But So what I'd like to do is read for you verses 1 through 5. That's as far as we're going to read today. I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 5, and then we'll just walk through this together and see how the Spirit would instruct and challenge our hearts through the words of Jesus. Starting again, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world 
existed. So the first observation to make is his very first statement. The hour has come. Obviously raises the question, which hour is he talking about? Now, if you've been following along in John's gospel, it probably is pretty plain to you which hour he's talking about because actually for the first half or so of John's gospel, this phrase comes up again and again in the negative. It's not yet time. The hour has not yet come. If you remember back in John 2, when Jesus performed his very first public miracle of turning water into wine at a wedding, his mother had come to him and said, they're out of wine, you've got to do something. And Jesus said, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Which on the surface sounds a little cryptic, a little bit hard to understand. What he was doing in turning the water into wine, there was water from these purification jars that was for ritual cleansing. And he changes that to this pure, beautiful wine. And what he was doing in that is making a symbol of how his life and death would provide purification for sinners. And so by pairing this, the hour is not yet come, and then by doing this public miracle, this symbolic way of pointing toward the cleansing from sin that Jesus himself would provide, he's looking toward the cross. He's looking toward the moment when Jesus would indeed be delivered up for sinners. So he says in John 2, 4, my time has not yet come. In John 7, verse 8, he says to his brothers, his brothers who don't believe in him at this point, which is so interesting, they're about to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles to Jerusalem. And he says, let's go. Or they say that to Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm not going yet because my time has not yet fully come. My time has not yet fully come. Later in that chapter, actually, Jesus did go to Jerusalem, just not at that moment. Jesus did go to Jerusalem, and he's speaking and presenting himself as the living water, and the Pharisees try to arrest him. But verse 30 says, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They couldn't get to him because the appointed time for Jesus to be delivered up for sinners had not yet come. Same thing happened in chapter 8. Verse 20, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. That is a refrain that repeats itself throughout the first half of John's gospel. Not time yet. The hour's not here. Not yet. Then there's a change at the beginning of chapter 13. The, the, this sort of upper room discourse, it's sometimes called that, this speech, the sermon of Jesus to his disciples on the night of his arrest begins in chapter 13 with these words. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That was the verse that set up the whole speech from the last three chapters that we've been looking at recently. The hour has now come. The hour, it said in 13.1, that Jesus would depart out of this world to the Father. So now, he's completed his sermon, and he's turned his eyes to the Father in prayer, and he says, the hour has come. It's here. The cross, the resurrection, the very short period of time, 40 days after his resurrection, where he'd be with his disciples one more time, 
and then his return to heaven, his return to the Father's side. The hour is here. You can almost hear the anticipation, the excitement, the joy in Jesus' voice as he says this word. The hour is finally here. It's come. So with that awareness, the shadow of the cross hangs heavy over this entire prayer. Everything that Jesus says in this prayer is colored by the awareness that the cross is just about to happen. And really, probably within a couple hours from the uttering of this prayer, he is arrested and the events of the day begin. So the cross is in view here, and it infuses every reflection and every request with deep significance. And I think it calls us to pay careful attention to what he says. So what's happening in verses 1 through 5? It's a question you've got to ask. All right, we got this first movement where he clearly is praying about himself in some way. What is happening here? So I think that we have really kind of a fleshing out, if you will, uh, of what's described of Jesus' attitude about the cross in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. You may turn there, but you don't have to because I'm going to read it to you. Hebrews chapter 12, after speaking of all of these saints who have died in faith, uh, you know, faithfully holding uh, to, to belief in God, chapter 12 begins this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In what way? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Hebrews, these verses in Hebrews give us an overview of the mental state, if you will. Uh, what purpose of his heart gave Jesus the strength and determination that he needed in order to endure the brutal suffering of the cross. Physical, mental, and spiritual suffering that would come through his work on the cross. And so Hebrews tells us, he had joy before him, and it was that joy that gave him the strength to endure the cross and despise the shame. That means to disregard it, to not count it as worthy of his attention. So in John 17, 1 through 5, it basically teases out for us or expands upon that mentality. It shows us what's in Jesus' mind as he turns to face toward the encroaching threat of torture, abandonment, and death that are about to befall him. And what's he concerned for? That's the question that we've got to ask now. His mindset, there's something in his view that is leading him toward enduring the cross. What is he concerned about? Glory. Verses 1-5, through five, over and over. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. 
Down in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Verse 5, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The glory of God is at the front of Jesus' mind and heart as he begins to approach the cross. Glorify your son. That's the first request. Glorify your son. The hour has come. Which hour? The hour of death. The hour of crucifixion. Now glorify your son. And here is the great paradox of the universe. And it's at the center of the Christian faith. The cross will bring glory to Jesus. This instrument of humiliation and torture and death will glorify the son of God. His greatest majesty will be displayed by his deepest humiliation his highest honor will be earned by his lowest disgrace if you remember the words of the apostle paul in philippians chapter 2 he paints this beautiful picture of the humility the humbling of jesus where he says he took on human form and became a servant became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross and then it says Therefore, why? Because of his humbling and because of his death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the greatest glory you can imagine, and it comes as a result of the deepest shame and humiliation that is possible. The Son of God hanging on a criminal's cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. What a mystery. If you fast forward to the end of the New Testament where the book of Revelation In the book of Revelation, John gives us a glimpse of heaven. The song being sung in heaven is worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's the death of Jesus on the cross that is the cause and the ground of His greatest glory and honor in heaven and in the church and for eternity. It's such a mystery. It's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. And we know that his disciples wrestled with this idea. A Messiah doesn't die. A Messiah rules. So for Jesus to be on the cross is going to be very perplexing to them. But it is through the humiliation of the cross that the glory of Jesus would come about. In fact, Though his death on the cross is what would accomplish salvation for sinners, more on that in a minute, its greatest and ultimate accomplishment, and thus its primary purpose, would be to bring glory to God. That's the chief purpose of the cross, is God's glory. I'll never forget, I I was at a youth camp. I was in maybe 11th grade, 11th or 12th grade. 
and there had been the student choir that had just sung in one of, our, one of the worship services in the evening of this camp. The student choir had just sang this song, God loves people more than anything. That was the constant refrain, God loves people more than anything. I could even sing the song to you, all right? I remember it because, I don't remember it because of the greatness of the song. I remember it because the preacher at that camp got up right after that song was sung. It was just the time for him to deliver his message. And he said, I don't intend any disrespect to the students who sang in that choir. You did a fine job. I don't intend any disrespect to the people who chose that song or the people who wrote that song. However, it's rubbish. He said, God does love people, don't get me wrong, but more than anything, God loves his glory. God is zealous for the righteousness of his name and upholding his holiness and his praise among the nations. That's what God loves more than anything, and it just slapped me in the face with this reality that I had never seen before. I had been blind to it all my life as a Christian student. And really, songs on Christian radio are filled with this, this sentiment. There's a lyric for one song that says, you would rather die than to ever live without me. As though God is like lonely and missing something and goes, if I just had someone to die for and to love, like then I'd be complete. We don't complete anything that's lacking in God. God is totally fine without us. Jesus even said, give me the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before there was a world, before there were people, Jesus was fine. He was with the Father, with the Spirit, sharing glory, and they were good. Jesus is like, can we go back to what that was like? He didn't, he didn't need somebody because he was lonely. Another song, lyric, and popular worship song, you didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven down. When we put human beings at the center of the gospel story, we dethrone the God of the universe, the king of creation, from his rightful place. And we rob him of the worship and honor that only he is worthy of. As Jesus is looking toward the cross, the glory of God is at the front of his mind. And he starts by this phrase, glorify your son. But lest we think he's just selfish and thinking about himself, he says immediately, so that the son may glorify you. And this is so in character with Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. Every step, every word, every action has been not for his own glory or attention, but for the glory of his Father over and over. Jesus is not ultimately concerned for his own glory, but for the glory of the Father. The only reason he requests his own glory is so that he could then in turn shine that glory back onto the Father. And in fact, this is interesting. While what I just read in Philippians 2 is true, while the incarnation of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus earned him the name above every name and the bowing of every knee, we often miss what Jesus plans to do ultimately with his position of authority and honor and sovereign rule over the kingdom, which is to hand it over to his father. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, which is probably the greatest chapter on the, the issue of resurrection and the future life of the people of God in God's presence, he says this in verses 24 through 28. Then comes the end. All right, so Christ is risen. Then all of those who believe in Christ will rise with him. Then comes the end when he, that is Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, that is the Father is not included in that, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. That sounds a little like he's just circular. But what he's saying is Jesus defeats every enemy. Jesus crushes sin and death. Jesus vanquishes Satan. Jesus purchases the kingdom of God with his blood. And then when it's done, he hands it to the Father. You reign. Here's the kingdom that I purchased for you. Which is why Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain for sinners, is worthy of honor and is the subject of songs in heaven like the one we just read about a few minutes ago. But God the Father is the one who bestowed upon Jesus this name. And he is the one who ultimately receives the kingdom that Jesus purchases. So Jesus wants glory for himself so that he can turn that glory around to his Father. Jesus has always been about serving his Father. Throughout the Gospel of John, in John 4, when he is with this Samaritan woman at the well, the doing of God's will was like food to him. The disciples bring him food and he says he won't eat. And they say, what, does he have food that we don't know about? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. The healing of a blind man in John 9 is said to be doing the works of him who sent me. The Father gave me this work to do, and so I'm doing it. Even of his words, he says in John 5, 19, I speak only what the Father has taught me. The steady, persistent refrain throughout Jesus' life and ministry is this. I will only do and say that which will bring honor and glory to God the Father. Friend, how are you doing in your glorifying of God in your life? Are you approaching decisions, conversations, purchases, vacations, entertainment, family time, career, church life with a heart that seeks the glory of God? Or have you kind of inadvertently slipped yourself or even humanity in general to that central place of importance? The gospel is all about how God loves me. Really, the gospel is about how God loves his glory and shares it with us. That's the good news. We get to participate in it with him because of his love for us. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Look at verse 2. He continues. Since, so he connects this to the glory of the Son and the Father. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given Him. 
three things about Jesus' authority to notice from this verse. Number one, it's given to him by God the Father. Right? Since you have given all authority, right? You have given him authority. Matthew Henry says the church's king is no usurper. That is someone who takes power that doesn't belong to him, as the prince of this world is. Christ's right to rule is incontestable. It's been given to him by God the Father. So he's been given his kingdom and his authority by the Father. Second, it's exhaustive. There's nothing over which he does not have authority. You have given him authority over all flesh. Remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where he commissions his disciples to go and make other disciples? How he starts that is, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Right? I have all authority it's been given to me. And in that authority, by nature of that authority, I send you out to make disciples. It's an exhaustive authority. There is nothing that does not fall under the authority of Jesus Christ. Even the devil who is called the prince of this world and the ruler of this world and things like that throughout the New Testament, even the power and the authority of Satan is limited. It's under the umbrella of what Jesus will allow. Jesus has ultimate authority. Third, it enables him to grant eternal life. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. He has the power over life and death. His authority gives him the ability to grant life, eternal life to people. Notice who gets this eternal life. Those whom the Father has given to the Son. Right? You've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Once again, we have this sort of another paradox, another mystery of the way that God's sovereign providential will in the saving of sinners and the freedom of choice of human beings kind of come into play and work with each other. And we don't totally understand how all of that fits. But it's consistent in John's gospel that Jesus says, the Father has given me some, and these are the ones that I will purchase and keep. In John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He even then strongly uh, implies that his direct audience for those words, the Pharisees, are not his sheep. They don't believe because they're not his sheep, is what he says. In John 6, 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Well, who's going to come to him and not be cast out? The ones that the Father has given him. The mysteries of God's sovereign grace are beyond our ability to totally put into a box and understand through and through. So what we need to make sure we do is see what's in the Scriptures, affirm what's in the Scriptures, and if there's things that we've got to go hold in tension with one another, then I think that's what faithfulness looks like. Not I believe in this over and against the truth of the other in either direction. So the Father has gifted some to the Son. And it is these that the Son faithfully shepherds and protects and who are given eternal life. It tells us there in verse 2. 
You've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. There's an analogy that's been famously used. I don't remember if it's Charles Spurgeon. Sometimes Spurgeon is attributed with this, but I'm not sure if it came from him or not. But there's this analogy over this debate between like, well, did God choose who to save or do, do people choose themselves and this kind of tug of war that people have. And he imagined the, this doorway in heaven where as you're approaching the doorway into heaven, on the front of the door it says, whosoever will, just like anyone who believes, anyone who trusts, it's available to all, right? And then once you enter by belief, and then you turn around and you look on the inside of the doorway to heaven, it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. It's a mystery. It's in God's sovereign care and mind, and in some ways it's probably not wise for us to try to nitpick it all down to where we can make our systems work. That's what we like to do. It doesn't always work that way. But God has gifted some to the Son as His own. And Jesus says, I will give eternal life to them. Praise God that he gives eternal life. It's only from him. And then he defines what eternal life is like. So what is this eternal life? In verse 3, he tells us, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So clearly, there's one God. There's only one true God. No other system of belief or religion that sets up its various false ideas of God or, or these deities or even twisted American notions of who God is and what God is like. There's only one true God. You're either worshiping the real God or you're worshiping nothing. Probably yourself at some level. There's one true God, and eternal life is knowing him and knowing Jesus whom he sent. And I think he means at least two things by this. No, knowing God is both the nature of eternal life, in other words, the definition of life is knowing God, and it's the doorway into eternal life. This is how we receive life. So the nature of eternal life, to say that this is eternal life, that they know God. This is the great goal and of, of all Christian duty and discipline, knowing God. That's what the Christian life is really all about. It's knowing God. That's what the goal and the hope of eternity is. It's that we will get to spend forever knowing God in His presence. That's what eternal life is. It's knowing God. So even when we talk about things like kind of spiritual disciplines and the goals. We want you to read your Bible and we want you to pray and we want you to invest in your local church and things like that. The goal of that is knowing God. And if knowing God more is not where we're headed and is not the goal, you're going to be constantly frustrated in those pursuits. We want you to read your Bible regularly. Not so that you'll get smarter, but so that you'll see Jesus more clearly. Because as you read the Scriptures, He reveals Himself to us. That's how we see Him. That's how we come to know him. We want you to grow in your prayer life, not so that you can impress your friends with your spirituality, but so your awareness of his presence and his care for you will grow as you see him answer your requests and your needs. 
We want you to invest in the life of the church through Sunday corporate worship like this and through Bible groups and service and evangelism and things like that that we do, but not so you can have a bunch of great friends, but so that the voice of God through His Word will be regularly in your ear and you will be able to receive His ministry through the other saints that He's gifted and placed in your life alongside you. It's all about knowing God. That's what the church is for. That's what reading the Bible is for. That's what praying is for. That's what serving others is for. It's so that we might come to know God in a deeper way. This is eternal life, that they know God and Jesus Christ. It's also the doorway into eternal life. How does one receive eternal life? By knowing God. 2 Peter 1.3, which I think is the theme verse for our VBS this week, so we'll hear some more of this this week, says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. We have everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through knowledge of Him. And I don't think that means like textbook knowledge. I can answer some test questions about who God is. It means a personal knowing of God in a relational way. It is the doorway into eternal life. Jesus himself said back in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's how eternal life begins, is through a knowledge by faith of Jesus Christ, God's Son. So I've got to ask you, do you know Him? Have you entered a relationship with God through the door of trusting in Jesus Christ? Are you regularly building your relationship with Him through meditating on His Word, drawing near to Him in prayer, and submitting to His church? Eternal life is that we know God and grow in our knowledge of Him in an increasing way deeper way. So the last couple of verses here really just kind of summarize. There's not a lot of new information for us in verses 4 and 5. He just kind of circles back around to what he's been saying. Verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. It's done, right? So in a couple of senses, I think he says this. First of all, he's lived his life in complete submission and obedience to God. Like Hebrews 4.15 tells us, that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, right? So he lived out his life perfectly, obediently, God-honoringly. I made that word up. You like it? So he's lived out his life in obedience to God. It's completed. I did it. He has guided and instructed his disciples who would carry on his work after he returns to heaven. I've done it. I've kept them faithfully up to this point. He even says at one point, except for the one um, who was a son of destruction, but that was so that the scriptures could be fulfilled. So talking about Judas, who would betray him. I've kept them. I've, I've done the work. And he would soon, very soon, go to the cross and purchase eternal life for those that the Father had given him. And this is so immediate, at least in, in the, the mind and economy of Jesus, it's so immediate that he speaks of this in the past tense, as though it's already completed. I think that's kind of what he's doing. When he says, I have completed the work you sent me to accomplish, I think he even has in view the cross. It's here, it's happening, it's done, in a sense. I've completed the work you gave me to do. And so now, 
with the work completed, with the mission accomplished. Verse 5, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Here again, Jesus returns to the first request once more. Glorify me. He holds in his mind's eye, in his imagination, if you will, he holds the vision of the glory and delight that he shared with God the Father. And I'd say the Spirit, although he's not mentioned in this context. It's as though he can see past the forest of agony and torture and abandonment and suffering that's approaching and just over the horizon the golden glow of heavenly glory summoning him home give me the glory that i had with you before time began the hour is here the time has come i can see it you ever been on a really long trip and things go wrong, and everyone's tired and cranky, and you're driving home, and you're like, I just can't handle one more gas station stop or one more mile of bare highway, and you see something that you recognize, and you go, we're close. We're almost home. You can almost taste it. I'm almost there. I think, I think that's what Jesus is expressing here. It's homesickness in a way. I'm almost there. Will you bring me back, Father, to the glory that I shared with you before the world began? It's calling to Him. He is eager for it. Again, it feels almost intrusive to see this level of emotion and, and anticipation and, and joy in the heart of Jesus in this prayer. And with that glory held firmly in His heart, and in his mind, he finds the strength to walk forward willingly, humbly, into suffering far deeper than what you and I can imagine to bring eternal life to sinners who believe in him and to bring glory and worship to his Father. Praise God. Let me pray.